The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Ruth. We are walking through this at a rapid pace, uh, four chapters in four weeks. Uh, for me, that's a rapid pace, and uh, it's, it's tough for me to kind of do this, uh, but, um, but I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm seeing things in Ruth that I had never seen before, and I pray that you are as well. Um, while you are turning there, let me just get you caught up to speed. Maybe you've been here for all of the, both previous sessions, but uh, maybe you've missed one or, or missed both. Let me just fill you in on where we are. In week one, we looked at Ruth chapter one. And that sermon was titled, A Road to Nowhere. And in that story, Elimelech was a man with his family living in Bethlehem. Uh, And there was a famine in the land. And so Elimelech moves his family to Moab. And uh, Moab is not a good place. Moab was an, an, an evil, wicked place. And in moving his family, he proved that he did not trust God, but he chose to trust in his own ability to produce resources for himself, and so he goes down and and decides to make a living for himself, leaving the land of promise. And when arriving there in Moab, shortly after, Elimelech dies, and his sons take Moabite wives. And after 10 years, they die. His his sons die, which leaves Naomi, his wife, uh, there alone, without a husband, without sons, with two pagan daughters-in-law. Well, Naomi, along the way, finds out. She hears that the the famine in Bethlehem has been lifted, and so she decides to return. She pleads with her daughters-in-law to return to their homeland, and Orpah listens, but Ruth does not. Ruth says something like, uh, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, I'm going to be buried with you, and I'll go there. Well, they arrive back to the city. The town is abuzz because they have not seen Naomi in at least 10 years, And uh, the people come up to her and say, Naomi, is this you? And she responds, the bitter shell of who she was, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And they arrive back there at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's important to note how these chapters come and go. The beginning of the barley harvest, remember how they left. There was a famine in the land, and it's it's just a clue here that God is, he has not forgotten her that he's bringing her back at a, at, a, at a time where he's going to shine this ray of hope into her life. Then last week, week two, we looked at Ruth chapter two, uh, a, a destination in the distance. And the narrator in verse one gave us a clue that uh, Naomi and Ruth, that Naomi had this potential kinsman redeemer. Now, to understand this, you have to look at the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy, and there was provision made in the law that God had set up for uh, if, if a man died and he did not have any, any sons, any children of his own to carry on his name, that a relative, a close relative, it was that man's responsibility to marry his widow and carry on the family line. And so this is great news here in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, but... That's a narrator note, and Ruth and Naomi have no clue at that point. And Ruth says to her mother-in-law, let me go out to glean. Perhaps maybe somebody will have pity on me. And she says, go ahead, my daughter. And Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, and indeed she does find pity. She just happens to come to the field of Boaz, not knowing that Boaz is her potential kinsman redeemer. 
She just happens to be there in the field, and Boaz just happens to show up at the field at the same time. We're made to see here that this is not coincidence that God is orchestrating all of this. And Boaz goes to Ruth in the field, which would have been shocking, this wealthy landowner going to this, this, uh, this pagan widow who's begging at the sides of the field. And he goes across to her, and he shows her elaborate provision and protection. I won't go into details, but read chapter 2 if you missed it. Ruth is so overwhelmed by his kindness, she falls on her knees and she says, Why? Why are you showing me this favor? To which he responded, Everything that you did, you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, and the death of her husband and the death of your husband has been told to me. And I understand, I've heard how you left everything to come and take shelter, refuge under the wings of our God. And may it be repaid to you, Ruth. These were the words of Boaz. And what we see there is that Boaz, in his prayer that God would repay her for her kindness, Boaz becomes the instrument in God's hand of repaying Ruth. He is showing kindness to her directly from God because she has come to take refuge under the wings of God. Well, he's so kind to her throughout the day that in one day she gleans enough barley after she beats it out and carries it home to have roughly about 50 pounds of barley. We said last week this would have been like a month's worth of groceries in one day because of his kindness. When she shows back up to Naomi, Naomi is shocked. And her mouth is on the floor, and her words just come fumbling out. Who is this? Who showed you favor? Whose field did you work in? And Ruth shares with her the name of the man, and his name was Boaz. And Naomi's memory comes back, and she remembers Boaz. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's a potential redeemer for us. And so all of a sudden, Naomi goes from, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I left here full and came back empty. She goes from that to the Lord has not forsaken his own. He has not forsaken the living or the dead. And we see here hope built into this story, and that's where we sort of left things off. Today we come to chapter 3, and this sermon is titled, A Rest Stop at Midnight. A Rest Stop at Midnight. Now, I've got a lot to say, which means I've got to talk fast, which means you have to listen fast, okay? Uh, Because there's a lot in this chapter. And this, at times, will get a bit risque, and I don't want to take it any further than the text does. And I'm sensitive to ears in the room, and so just bear with me as we go through this. I want to read the first eight verses uh, of our passage today and then finish out, uh, and there'll be two sections. So follow along with me in Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. 
And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman, lay, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, over top of these verses, I would put this, uh, this title or this phrase. When things were moving too slow for Naomi, Naomi decided to take matters into her own hands. And I think all of us can identify with this. And I get this throughout this passage. The very last verse of chapter 2 and verse 23, we learn that Ruth there spent the rest of the time gleaning in Boaz's fields, not only through the barley harvest, but through the wheat harvest as well. So two to three months has gone by. And guess what? We left it last week saying, maybe there's a ring coming. Maybe this is like, you know, there's going to be a proposal and maybe there's going to be a wedding and Boaz is ready to make his move and this is a romantic tale. But two or three months has gone by since Naomi said, the Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead and Boaz has still not made a move. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 1, where Naomi says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Is Boaz not our kinsman redeemer? And so I think if you just read between the lines, what's happening here is, sorry to paint all mother-in-laws in this this stereotypical swath, but I think like a stereotypical mother-in-law, she says, Boaz isn't moving quick enough. Therefore, I'm going to take responsibility here, and I'm going to make things happen, and therefore she devises this plan. Now, this is big because back in chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi had prayed that the Lord Lord himself would grant rest to Ruth. But here in chapter 3, she says, should I not seek rest for you? And so she takes matters into her own hands because she thinks heaven could use a little help because things are not going along as fast as she thinks. In verses 2 through 4, Naomi then reveals, she concocts her own plan, and she reveals it. She says, Boaz will be winnowing tonight down at the the threshing floor. Well, you have to understand a little bit about what this is. Probably you have never threshed or winnowed barley. So what they would do is the threshing floor typically was a, a part of the earth where the stone, the rock underneath, was exposed. Typically, it would have been on top or on the side of a hill where the breezes were good. And what they would do is they would bring all the grain that they had collected all through the, the harvesting season, and they would put it at the, at the threshing floor. And then they would take the, the winnowing forks, And they would toss the grain into the air. And as they tossed it into the air, the breezes that would blow through would blow the chaff away and the grain which was heavier would fall back to the ground. The threshing floor made of stone kept the grain from being mixed in with all of the dirt of just anywhere. The men, when they would winnow out the barley, they would would do so at night uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it was cooler than the heat of the day. And two, the breezes were more gentle. There weren't these big strong winds that blew through at night like there were in the day. And so it was just right to blow the chaff away. So Naomi concocts this plan. She says, tonight he's going to be down there. Ruth, you're going to go down there. 
She says to Ruth, wash yourself. Anoint yourself with perfume. Put on your cloak, which would have been this outer jacket, this outer garment. And there's more going on here that meets, than meets the eye. This is more than, than Ruth or Naomi telling Ruth that, hey, you might want to just pay a little more attention to your outward appearance. Like, you need, to, you need to go bathe, Ruth. Maybe he hasn't noticed you because you haven't been taking care of you. That's not what's going on. Nor, I think, is, is this Naomi's necessarily attempt to use seduction to entrap. This could be what's going on. Naomi could be saying at this point, he's not moving fast enough. Let's leave off from following God at this point, And let's use what you have, Ruth, and let's seduce him into one night of passion. And then he'll be hooked. But I don't think that's it either. I think there's more than seduction going on here, although this passage is filled with these sexual overtones. I, I, the reason I think there is more than that going on is, is we learn as we look at the rest of Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David did something very similar. When David's son, from the relationship that he had had with Bathsheba, died, there came a point when it was told to him that the son had died, and he got up, he washed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went about his business. He anointed himself, and here we learn that this is what Naomi is telling Ruth to do, and I think what she is doing is not saying we will entrap him, but we will make it known to him that you are out of mourning and you are ready for a husband. Perhaps Naomi has reasoned that Boaz is too good of a guy to make an advance on a woman who is still grieving the death of her husband. And so she concocts this plan. You've got to make it clear to Boaz. He's thick-headed. He's not getting this. You know, he's slow. Let's make it clear. You want a husband. Perhaps she's picked up on language that he has already used, as we'll see later on, when he said, you've come to take shelter under the wings of our God. We'll see that in just a second. Verse 3 also, in the second half of verse 3, she tells her, go down to the threshing floor in secret and wait for him to eat and drink. Now, the very fact that she's doing this in secret tells us that this is a little bit shady. The fact, though, that she tells her, don't do anything until his belly is full after a hard day's work, and he's up there in the cool breeze of the night, and he lays down, it'll be the perfect time. Because what happens to anybody at that point? They're out like a light. And so she realizes he's going to fall asleep fast. That's the time, Ruth. Make your move then. She says, watch where he lies down, go to him, uncover his feet, and then lie down. There were probably, more than likely, more than one man there. Boaz was not the only guy up there. So it's pretty important that she watches where Boaz lies down. Can you imagine the awkward moment if she goes to the wrong guy and lifts up the blanket there? Ooh, <laughs> wrong feet, you know. That would be kind of embarrassing. So the men slept there to guard the grain, and she's watching to see where he is, and then she sees that he lies down at the end of the pile of grain, and she goes to him, and she uncovers his feet and then lies down. What are we to make of this? I, I will not go into detail, but I'm just telling you there are all sorts of interpretations for this phrase, to uncover his feet. 
So how are we supposed to understand this? What are we supposed to think about a woman who bathes, puts on perfume, and then in the dark of the night goes out to the field where Boaz is sleeping and uncovers his legs and lies down? I mean, the the writer of the story wants us to feel this tension. Is this Naomi's attempt, like I said before, to entrap him by seduction? If so, then we have to say this doesn't fit the characters that we have heard about up until now. This does not sound like the Naomi that has been described to us. This certainly doesn't sound like the, the Ruth that has been described to us. The my God shall, your, your God shall be my God. And it certainly does not sound like anything that Boaz would fall for. Up to this point, he has been a man of worth. He's been a man of character. He's been good to the core. He's been God-fearing. Even in the way he addresses his workers when he meets them in the field points to the fact that he's probably not going to fall for something like this. And obviously, their plan depended on his response. I mean, Naomi said to her, go over there, uncover his feet, lay down, and then he'll tell you what to do i got to be honest with you. The picture that I have here at this moment is Reba McIntyre's song, Fancy. You know, just be nice to the gentleman and they'll be nice to you. That, but I don't think that's what's going on, right? In verses 5 through 9, Ruth goes along with Naomi's strategy until she doesn't. In verse 8, probably Boaz wakes up because of the cool air on his legs. You can imagine, he's there. I mean, think about it in your own home where you have central air conditioning and, and you got heat and all that. Think about when, when the covers are off of you. There are times when you shiver and wake up and you pull the covers close. And out in the middle of the night air, he probably gets cold. He's startled to, to, to awake. He reaches for the, the, his cloak to cover himself again and he sees a woman there at his feet. Startled, I think, is an understatement. And in this day, it would have been common for um, prostitutes to go out to the threshing floor at night because they knew that's where the men would be. And they knew that they were out there away from anything else. It was dark, and it was probably a good place for them to drum up business. It was dark. There was perfume in the air. Boaz probably assumes when he looks, he opens his eyes and sees this woman that she is one of these prostitutes. Hence, his words to her, who are you? Verse 9, some translations translate spread, the, when, when Ruth says to, to him, uh, I am Ruth, your servant, spread the corner of your garment. Here in, in the ESV, it says, spread the wings over me. But he, some translate, spread the corner of your garment over me. If so, if that's what it means, then this is probably very sexual. But again, I don't think that's what's going on. And there are two clues that tell us that that's not what's going on. One is Ruth's use of the word servant. When she first describes herself back in chapter 2, verse 13, she uses the word for servant that means the lowest of the low, that she is a slave girl. And it would have been unthinkable for a slave girl, the word that she used, to have anything to do with the field owner. But here, she uses a different word. And in in verse 9, she uses a word that means handmade, which means that she is indeed available. You say, well, that's not really proving your point, pastor. 
Well, there's another clue. Then she says, spread your wings over your servant. It's the same language that Boaz used back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, the Lord repay you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I heard one pastor preach it this way, and he said, could it be that two to three months have gone by, at the end between chapter 2 and the beginning of verse 3, could it be that, that Naomi and Ruth have played over Boaz's words over and over again in their minds and heard him say over and over, heard him say there in verse 12, may the Lord repay you whose wings you came to, to, to take refuge under. Maybe they have, they have picked up here on a hint from Boaz, meaning he would like to initiate a relationship with her, but he's an older man. Boaz is probably in his 50s, and she is probably in her 20s. And perhaps Boaz thinks, number one, that's really awkward, and number two, she's got her pick of a lot younger men. And maybe Naomi and Ruth reason that maybe he just needs a little help to understand that you too are available for a relationship. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8 is, I think, the only other place outside of the book of Ruth that uses this phrase to spread one's garment over another. And it was a symbol of a covenant commitment. In Ezekiel 16, 8, it's speaking of the love that, the, that God has for his people. And when he sees them, he spreads his garment over them in a covenant relationship. This idea of hesed, this, this loving kindness and commitment to them. And what it, what it came to be known as in that day and age to spread the corner of your garment over someone became a symbol of engagement, much like an engagement ring. When, when someone asks the, the, the love of his life to, will you marry me, gives them a ring, this was the equivalent in that day. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Spread, the wings, spread your wings over me. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Ruth was not seeking to trap Boaz with sex. She was proposing to him. She had heard maybe a hint of a proposal in his voice using the same language, you've come to take refuge under the wings. And maybe she learns this custom and says, if he's not going to pop the question, then I will. And I think Naomi has devised this entire thing to send Ruth to Boaz to make it known that she is ready for a husband. She's out of mourning and she comes and virtually proposes to him in the middle of the night. This would have been scandalous because she was a woman proposing to a man. She was a field worker proposing to a field owner, and she was a Moabite proposing to an ancestral Jew. But I think this is exactly what was going on. Desperate times called for desperate measures. And so in the mind of Naomi, the end justified the means. The takeaway for us in these first nine verses is that Naomi's impatience put everyone at risk. 
Even though God still works things out, as we'll see as we go through the rest of chapter 3, her impatience put everybody around her at risk. There were consequences all around. You think about it. Prior to this, she had told Naomi, it is good for you to stay close to the women in Boaz's field because if you go somewhere else, you will be putting yourself in physical danger. Boaz himself had said, have I not charged my men not to touch you? Apparently, this was a dangerous place for women. But now, in her desperation, Naomi sends her out not only into the threshing floor filled with all of these men, but she sends her out under the cover of darkness at night. And all of a sudden, she's willing to risk Ruth's physical safety. She's also willing to risk Ruth's reputation in the city. Boaz, in a minute, is going to say the whole reputation about you so far since you've been here is that you're a woman of worth. But Naomi is willing to risk this about Ruth. She's also willing to risk what Boaz thinks of Ruth. To this point, he's been so kind to her. And this has been the only means of grace shining back into their lives. And Naomi says, enough's enough. I can't wait any longer. I've got to take this by the horns. And she's willing to risk it all. She put Boaz in a place of risk because she put him in a place where it would have been so easy for him to fall to temptation. He had had a good meal. The night air was cool. There was an attractive, perfumed woman at his feet. And let's be honest, he's a red-blooded male. And she risked his purity for the sake of her wanting her way when she wanted it. She also brought great risk to herself because the whole plan could have blown up in her face. Boaz could have saw Ruth there at his feet and said, get away from me. Don't ever come back to my field again. And the one kinsman redeemer that she's aware of would cast him aside. Her impatience, her unwillingness to, to wait on God put everything at risk. But none of that mattered because she wanted what she wanted when she wanted it. And I would ask you this simple question before we move to the next section. How often are you like Naomi? God says, wait. And you say, no, 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 that's that's too long. I can't wait, God. I've got to make this happen. I would tell you that you are putting yourself and others around you at great risk. It is so much better to wait on the Lord. Second section, over this section, I would title, When Things Were Moving Way Too Fast... Boaz submitted himself to God. So when when things are going too slow, Naomi takes matters into her own hands. But now when things are going way too fast, Boaz says, no, no, I will submit myself to God. Let me read verses 10 through 17, then we will walk through them together. Verse 10, he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. 
And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. When things were moving way too fast, Boaz submitted himself to God. Verses 10 and 11, we see that Boaz did not chase after just any woman. Boaz was a wealthy landowner, and yes, he's probably in his 50s at this point, but he's still desirable. He probably could have had his pick of a lot of women there in Bethlehem. But instead, he does not chase after just any woman because he's not searching for a wife like everyone else is. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he had noticed Ruth because she had demonstrated this hesed, this loving kindness, this faithfulness toward Naomi. She had left everything to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. And when he saw that, he realized that a woman that takes refuge under the wings of the Lord is a woman that I'd like to take under mine. This is the type of woman that he is pursuing. She was truly a worthy woman, verse 11 says. It's the very same word or, or phrase that's used in Proverbs 31, verse 10. Before there were handbags and all that for, what is it, 31, there was this verse. And in Proverbs 31, verse 10, it says, An excellent wife who can find. And this is the word here. Ruth goes all of a sudden from this, this woman at the end of verse, chapter 1 who Naomi says, I've come back empty. Ruth says, I'm, I'm no one and I'm worth nothing. To here in chapter 3, Boaz says, everybody in town knows you are an excellent woman. You are a woman of worth. He knows that she could pursue younger men, but like Boaz, she also wanted a man of worth. And that's what we learned about him very early on, that he was in chapter 2 a man of true character. He was godly. And the two of them, I think, were a match made in heaven. He put her fears to rest at the end of verse 11 and said, I will do for you all that you ask. I will, I will redeem you. I will take you as my bride. This is the equivalent of Boaz here saying yes. You know, what's the question of when someone proposes? Well, what did she say? Well, here Boaz says, yes. All that you ask of me, I will do. Verses 12 and 13, Boaz was a man of real integrity. You talk about a plot twist. I mean, Ruth has put herself out there like no other. And he says, yes. But I got to tell you, Ruth, there is a redeemer that is closer than I. And he has first rights. And I could not live with myself if I took a shortcut around the law. I must first see if he is willing to redeem you. And if he is, then good, let him redeem you. But if not, don't lose heart. I will still redeem you. You think either one of them got much sleep that night? I mean, at this point, I mean, Boaz looks at Ruth and says, lay down here the rest of the night. She lays at his feet. They, they both lay down to try to go to sleep. There is nothing in the text that leads us to think that there's anything that went on the rest of the night. Now, I think probably there, was, there were temptations they battled, but there's nothing that leads us that there was anything impure, that they laid there, and I don't think they slept much at all. 
Boaz would not have been able to live with himself without taking this first act of patience. He submitted himself to God's will, in God's way, in God's time. In verse 14, Boaz was a man of purity. He was a good man, but as I said before, he was a red-blooded male. I think he did indeed lay there all night long with perfume in the air, stars overhead, crickets or whatever they have in Bethlehem serenading, and I think he fought temptation all night long. Men, I think he fought temptation all night long. Guess what? He won the battle. Don't tell me that that something is too tempting for you, that you just don't have the power to resist it because in Christ Jesus, you have the same power living in you that lived inside of Jesus that brought him out of the grave. I think Boaz lays here all night long and he fights this temptation, but he wins the battle. He's a man of purity. And in verse 14 also, he is a man of protection because the first thought on his mind, when they wake up, even before the sun is up, they, they can't even recognize one another. It's so dark out there. It's away from any of the city lights. It's so dark. And he says to her, we can't let anyone know that you were here tonight. In a culture that heavily favored the man, this would have been really no cost to Boaz at all. But it would have cost Ruth severely. And he says, I cannot let it be known that you were here. And he sends her out before anyone can know. Verses 15 through 17, we see that Boaz was a man of protection or provision. He took her what would have been a shawl when he said, bring me the garment. This would have been an outer garment on top of her cloak that that would have been like a shawl. It would have been like a cape. And she brought this to him and he lays it out on the ground and he takes these six measures of barley. There's difficulty here in knowing, knowing exactly how much this is, but probably this is more grain than she got on the very first day. Commentators think that probably he loads this shawl up with around 80 pounds of barley and he ties this shawl together and he lifts this thing up and he places it on Ruth's shoulders now Ruth is a strong woman right we learned she's already carried 50 pounds now she's going to carry 80 pounds and he sends her out on her way and she leaves from there she leaves from the threshing floor remember this is up on a hill she goes down the hill and she goes back up into the city. And I think by the time she gets back to her mother-in-law, she's probably huffing and puffing and she's tired of carrying this thing. And her mother-in-law comes out and says, I, I got to know, how did it go? And she asks her this question, how did it fare? But the literal translation is not how did you fare. The literal translation is, who are you, my daughter? Now at this point, we, we can assume that Naomi knows it's Ruth. She's known Ruth for years. She knows who it is. She's not literally saying, who are you? She's asking a question that has a deeper meaning. Perhaps, are you the pagan Moabite widow returning to me this morning? Or are you in this moment the wife of our kinsman redeemer? This is, who she's, she, this is what she means. Who are you, my daughter? Verse 17, Ruth told her everything, including why she was carrying this huge sack of grain. By now she has probably let this thing just fall on the floor. And she tells her mother-in-law, Boaz said I shouldn't come back to you empty-handed, so he gave me this. 
And I wonder if, if Boaz, when he was filling this up for Ruth, did he have this sort of wry smile on his face saying, tell your mother-in-law, I said, you couldn't go back empty-handed. Like, Naomi, I know what you were trying to do. I don't approve of it, but I want you to know I'm going to take care of you all. This could have also been this sort of bride price that Boaz was making this earnest down payment, if you will, which is customary for the culture, to say to Naomi, who is now the, 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 the guardian, the one responsible for Ruth, I intend to marry your daughter-in-law. It's a beautiful picture. Either way, we cannot miss that once again, just as in chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi had gone away full, she thought, but come back empty. Here, once again, in chapter 3, Ruth goes out empty and comes back full. And God wants us to see this, that God is going to provide. That He will become, and I don't want to spoil it, but there is a kinsman redeemer coming that is better than Boaz. The takeaway from this section for us is the way that Boaz loved Ruth teaches us a lot about the way God loves us. That God loves us with a love that transforms nobodies into people of worth in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in you and me that caused God to say, man, got to have that person. No, all of us were miserable, poor, naked, and blind. And God in his affection set his gaze on us and covered us with the corner of his garment and committed himself to us. He wed himself to us. And because of our connection with Jesus, we have become people of worth. This is how God loves us. God loves us with a love so committed to truth that Jesus set his face toward the cross. Like Flint, the book of Luke, Luke tells us, that when he was in the garden, even before going to the cross, and he was in agony, he still went to the cross on our behalf because he was committed to the truth. God loves us with a pure, undiluted, and undeterred love. And God loves us with a protecting and a providing love. I wonder today, have you received such a love? I realize that today our attendance is down somewhat because of uh, the weather and, and, and all those things, but I wonder today if there might be someone in our midst who is an unbeliever and who has never received this love. Today, the Bible tells us that you can be loved in this way by God by turning from your sin and placing your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. And I would invite you to do so. Have you received such a love? Or are you like Naomi, constantly trying to, to fill the void in your life by your own actions? Not willing to wait on the provision of God, but saying, I must take matters into my own hands, constantly seeking joy and peace and all of these things, and finding everything leaves you empty. Like Ruth, we learn that when we come to Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of our true and better Boaz. That Ruth, in this moment, she follows Naomi's plans just as Naomi had followed her husband into Moab. She follows this plan not knowing 
all of what she's communicating and in what she's doing. And Boaz shows to her that I'm going to love you the way God loves us. That in your bumbling and stumbling and in your ignorance, nothing you can do will separate you from the love that I have for you in my son. And I would say to you that like Naomi, and this one we would miss if we did not think about this passage, like Naomi, I'm so thankful for this. Even our impatient meddling cannot thwart the plans of God. Sometimes you come up against obstacles that are obstacles of your own making and you think, oh no, I have wrecked things. And God says, Naomi, I cannot leave you empty-handed. I'm going to take care of you. I'm still leading you to this kinsman redeemer. The conclusion for us in our passage today is this. In verse 18, we are left with this, this cliffhanger again. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Wait, my daughter, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. And so we're left with this major question. Will this other redeemer step up and take responsibility? Will he marry Ruth? Or will this love story have its happy ending? We'll find out next time. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so thankful for your covenant love. God, I am so thankful that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Romans 8 tells us that it just goes through a laundry list and there is nothing that can pull us away that will cause you to say enough already and wash your hands of us. You are so unbelievably committed to us that you sent your own son to die for us. God, I'm also thankful today that in our own turning away, in our own what we believe is wisdom at times, in our own scheming and concocting, that nothing that we can do as we meddle will thwart your plans. God, obviously, Lord, we want to be people who want to wait on you and seek to to please you. Lord, we don't want to put the people around us at risk. We don't want to put ourselves at risk, but God, teach us that. Lord, grant us that. And God, in the meantime, would you cause us to rest in your covenant loving kindness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.